This morning we continue our series on Jesus' vision for a happy new year, looking at the eight Beatitudes, and today it's the seventh. And because it's in the second half of that list, it's considered one of those things we might aspire to. Listen then to the reading from Matthew, beginning at verse 23 of the fourth chapter. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, and paralytics, and he cured them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. If war has an opposite, it may well be a garden. That's a line from a new book called Orwell's Roses, as in George Orwell of Animal Farm in 1984. It's not exactly a biography, although it's biographical, but it's mostly about how this person who was devoted to writing against totalitarian forces and whose life was surrounded by wars could find solace in beauty, especially gardens and especially roses. In fact, the author says, even as dark as 1984 gets, there's still little glimpses every once in a while and descriptions of flowers. If war has an opposite, it may well be a garden. When Jesus gave these words, blessed are the peacemakers, the Romans had occupied the Holy Land for nearly a century. And by the time Matthew wrote it down, the Romans had destroyed Jerusalem, laid siege to it, destroyed the temple, raised to the ground, rock and rubble, no flowers. What do these words mean after two world wars? What do they mean when Russian troops are on the border of Ukraine? As serious as that is, I cannot help it, and I confess, I still hear when I read this beatitude a little echo of a scene from Monty Python's The Life of Brian. You may know the scene. It's supposed to be the story of Jesus. He's on the mountain. He's giving the Sermon on the Mount. He's starting with the Beatitudes. And when he gives this one, the people in the back who the whole time have been straining to hear what he's saying, someone says, well, what did he say? And a know-it-all says, he said, blessed are the cheesemakers. And a sort of an argument ensues among them as to why they should be singled out. And the know-it-all says, 
It's not meant to be taken literally. It applies to all the dairy workers. I don't think the key to understanding this beatitude is literal versus figurative, although that will matter in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, for instance, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. That's not literal. But in this case, I think it's really in the meaning of the words, starting with that word, peace. This is not just no war. This is a Greek word that translates a Hebrew word you may have heard before, shalom. But shalom doesn't just mean peace. It means health and well-being and prospering and justice for all persons, not just for a few. This is not, this is not the Woodstock of the 60s. Shalom is well-being. The people in Israel knew about Rome's so-called peace. The Pax Romana, it was called. But it wasn't peace. It came by means of war. It came by means of violence and armies and conquest. That's not peace. Yeah, it, it did. It did put an end to, to conflict in the region, other nations attacking Israel, and it put an end to some piracy and that kind of thing. But it, it, it didn't bring stability and prosperity for all. The elites still dined fine, but the poor still struggled. That's not shalom. And so two approaches kind of arose. They'll sound very familiar. There were the zealots who chose to fight. We've got to fight. And then there were those who said, there's no use. Just go along. Put up with it. It's okay. You, you recognize it. Fight or flight. This gets complicated in the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 5, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called children of God. Chapter 10, he says, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. So I was looking back at this book that tries to tell the life of Jesus, and that author chose that verse, the sword. I wouldn't choose that. Not to tell the story of Jesus, I would choose this one. And here's why. Because when faced with fight or flight, Jesus chose a third way. Nonviolent resistance. He still resisted Rome. He still preached against it. He still preached for justice and peace. But he didn't pick up a sword. He, he laid down his life. They took it. And, and the gospel says that those who do that, who who do this thing, this making this peace, they'll be called children of God. Now, you should think, when you hear that, about how children imitate their parents. And if you read on in the Sermon on the Mount, you get a picture of how God is. For instance, God sends rains and sun upon the just and the unjust, showing no favoritism. That's not how I would do it. And, and Jesus says, you shouldn't just love your neighbor, but you should love your enemy. And if one of those Roman soldiers forces you to carry his stuff for a mile, which he could do, Jesus said, just keep on going. Go the extra mile. You've heard that phrase. That's where it comes from. Go the extra mile. This is a different way of living in the world. It's kind of surprising to me that for most of Christian history, Interpreters did not apply this to war. They, they talked about interpersonal relationships. For most of 
Christian history, all the way up to the Reformation, that was the dominant thing. And I think in large part because a certain emperor by the name of Constantine, when he converted to Christianity, he wed church and state and he also married it off to his war machine. He had this vision that by the cross his army would conquer and he had crosses painted on their shields. There is still a need to apply this to global conflict to war. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago how in Israel you can go to the church of the Beatitudes. It's octagonal to represent the eight Beatitudes, and it's beautiful, it's lovely. You're walking around and you're admiring it, and there's that sign, and, and it says, blessed are the peacemakers. All of them have their own sign. And then, and then someone says, oh, by the way, did you know that Mussolini built this church? And you're like, What? What kind of incongruity is that? Thankfully, the grounds are full of flowers, gardens, trees. Because if war has an opposite, it may well be a garden. Now, nowadays, interpreters would say, yes, this definitely applies to war and it applies to interpersonal. Because, let's face it, I, I don't know about you, I feel powerless to do anything about Ukraine. Powerless. So you won't believe this. You'll think I'm making it up. A week ago Sunday, I preached on pure in heart. I drove home. I had lunch with my wife. I needed to run errands, so I took her car because it had snowed that week, and I was going to run it through the car wash. And it just so happens that the car wash where we live is on the same piece of property with the Home Depot and some other stores, and it's just chaos. All of Liberty decided to wash their car at the same time, maybe half. And because of the way it's situated, there's a lot of ways to get in. But, but regulars know this is how you come around. This is how you get in the line. And, and it's almost as if I had said to the 200 cars out there, yes, if I can have your attention, I'm preaching next week on peacemaking, and I'm looking for examples, positive or negative. What you got? Because did they ever throw me some ideas? Two vehicles in front of me was a black pickup truck. He's inching along like I'm inching along, and then the Volkswagen Beetle comes and cuts right in front of him. He doesn't honk. He gets out. And I'm thinking, oh, no. The guy rolls down the window of the Beetle, and they have a conversation. I can't hear a word they're saying, but it's pretty obvious it's, you know, Friction. And then at one point, the truck driver, he, he goes like that, makes the guy flinch. So then the guy in the beetle sticks a certain finger out the window, and then I'm thinking, now it's really going to happen. And they keep talking. Well, now it's time to move. And so the truck driver gets back in, and then it happens again with another two cars. When I made my way through the soap and the suds and the blow dryer and came out, the pickup truck and the beetle were pulled off to the side and both drivers were standing there and my first instinct was uh-oh and then I had this little glimmer of hope that any minute they were going to just kind of laugh it off shake hands and sing kumbaya but they didn't they got back in their vehicles both of them smirking at the other guy who's a jerk no peace and definitely no flowers. You may have noticed 
It does not say blessed are those who love peace. Blessed are those who reap the benefits of peace, who enjoy peace, who... Nope. It's peacemakers. It is the hard work of making peace. And those who do it will be called children of God. Future tense. (laughs) Because in my experience, peacemakers now are called all sorts of names. And sometimes their fate is the same as that of Jesus. But he was raised from the dead as vindication, as validation that he's a child of God. In that book, Orwell's Roses, the author goes into detail about his writings, and about the wars, and how he found solace in roses. When he was finishing the manuscript 1984, they came home one day, they were living in London, and it was scattered all over the place because of German bombing. And if they had been there, he and his wife might have died. But he writes about the roses. And I thought, you know, Quarreling lovers still exchange flowers as signs of peace. And tomorrow, how many flowers will be given? Yeah, it's a day of love, but it's also, it's a kind of peace. Besides those novels we know, Orwell wrote lots of essays. And in one of them, he comments on what it means to plant things. He talks about an apple tree. He says, if you plant an apple tree, it can live for a century bearing fruit for a century, and he says, you know, I planted one in 1936 before Hitler's rise, and it could bear fruit well into the 21st century, and maybe it is. But then he says, and this is what I really loved about the book. This was my favorite part. He said, in the face of any antisocial act, whether you do it or it happens in the world, take an acorn and push it in the ground. Isn't that great? In the face of violence and war, plant a tree. And immediately my mind went to our centennial. If you don't know, for our hundredth, we planted a hundred trees. And most of them were in the northeast part of Kansas City, where we're trying to work for shalom for the poor. But a couple of them were here on our own soil, where a little over a hundred years ago, World War troops, World War I troops, practice before heading down to Union Station, and many of them never returning. In the face of war and violence, plant a tree. That's what they did in Jerusalem. See, if you're in, if you're in Israel and you leave the Church of the Beatitudes up in the Galilee and you make your way to Jerusalem, the two most visited spots, first, Western Wall, which is the remains of where the temple stood before it was destroyed. But the second one is the Holocaust Museum. Its name is Yad Vashem. And when we get to Yad Vashem, always David Katz, good friend, comes out. He lives there and he wants to tell us the story because on the grounds, before you go into the museum, there are trees everywhere, 2,000 trees. And each one has a little brass nameplate. And it's the story. Each one is the story of a non-Jew who risked life and limb to save Jews, like Oscar Schindler. And then we go into the museum, and of course, it's like every Holocaust museum. It's so powerful, but there is a kind of gravity added when you're in Israel, I suppose. When we come out, before we get on the bus, we make one more stop. And if that weren't enough, 
This one's really tough. It's the Children's Memorial. The architect hollowed out a cavern and then closed it off and you enter into pitch black. You cannot see a thing. And the way that Jews remember the dead is with candles. And so to simulate that, there's little pieces of light that flash. They almost look like stars against the night sky. 1.5 million children were murdered in the Holocaust. And so as you make your way through, the names of those that are known are read aloud and you shuffle through the dark. And when people come out of there into the bright sun, almost always there are tears. Millions dead. And only 2,000 trees. Which means we've got some planting to do.